We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical mental suit, my physical as well as my mental suit fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host, along with Loretta Eaton and guest Siglinda Moore. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. So um, we have kind of an interesting show today. Uh, we've got a lot of breaking news that we're going to cover, um, but we're also going to have an opportunity to talk to uh, Siglinda about uh, her history and where she comes from, what brings her to the Kenai Peninsula. She has a story that's rather unique, and we had an opportunity to uh, sit down and talk with her earlier uh, this last week. and get to know her a little bit and thought you might enjoy uh, hearing one of our community members uh, sort of path to how they got here and where they've come from and their unique perspective on the world. So um, as we have kind of made a tradition, we're going to first dive into some rules. Okay. Okay. Um, So we can talk about rules. No, no bathroom rules. Okay. No, no we did that last we week. Do We're, done. Rules? We're done. We're done. We're done. No, no more bathroom rules. Okay. So this comes from the book of rules, the right way to do everything. And this is published by uh, local uh, author, Joshua Belter, and you can find it on Amazon um, for a pretty reasonable price. But today we're going to delve into chapter six or section six of the book of rules. And the first rule, uh, excuse me, I got a cough. (coughs) All right, the first rule that we're going to look at is proper yawning protocol. (laughs) Now, what what brought me to this rule today was um, I heard Joe Biden uh, have a huge gaffe. He was uh, he was trying to trying to say something about the governor of the state that he was in and he couldn't get it out and he finally called the governor the president and um and a lot of what he was saying was unintelligible you couldn't really understand it and he was tripping over his words and it sounded to me and i didn't see the video of this but it sounded to me like maybe the teleprompter was going in fast forward and he was trying to read it as fast as he could but he could not keep up (laughs) and so um, the other, the other uh, idea is that maybe he just was really sleepy. Because when I read this rule, I was like, you know what? I'll bet you that was the problem. He was just really sleepy and trying to say something mid-yawn. So the first... Uh, he needs to come to Amokan Coffee for coffee. Yeah, there Why you go. Why don't you send him a, you know, a text and say, hey, if you can't wake up, <laughs> hey, what's wrong with that? Yeah, the president and I don't text each other. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um Although he keeps trying, I just don't answer the text. <laughs> uh, so, so board of rules 6-1 is proper yawning protocol. Yawning is the act of simultaneously inhaling air and stretching the eardrums. I did not know that. Yawning is almost always accompanied with the extension of the arms. While experiencing a yawn, talking is forbidden. 
from the moment an individual is aware that a yawn is initially occurring until one second after the completion of the yawn. Speaking during a yawn completely exposes the mouth and all that it may contain. (laughs) Additionally, words spoken while yawning may be misinterpreted, which with potential dire consequences. Individuals who have spoken the words sacks or ship while yawning know this all too well. Okay, we're so, getting too close to that bathroom. So, that bathroom so, 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 yeah, so subsection A, only the yawning individual is required to cease conversation during a yawn. Others may speak freely during the entire dur- duration of the yawn. Uh, subsection B, it is well recognized that yawning initiates a chain reaction of yawns by others. Therefore, the mouth shall be completely covered during a yawn, and the head shall be tilted slightly away from others. Because COVID masks can't even protect you from the yawn. Uh, that's a good idea. We should promote COVID masks for yawning. For yawning. Why isn't that, that in the book? That's it was the, published. That's the, yeah, well, we need an abridged, updated uh, you know, yeah, version. We will recommend it. Okay, so, so the second rule that we have here... This one just, I was driving the other day and I was following a Subaru with a (laughs) topper on it that had about (laughs) 5,000 stickers on it about Uh coexisting and, Uh you know, be happy, hug a fish, you know, and that kind of stuff. And and hate unvaccinated people. And and as I was driving, I went to pass pass that Subaru and I was curious to see who was driving it, Mm. you know, because I mean, you never can tell. And I looked down and... And here's a, I have a truck and, you know, uh-huh. so, you know, one of these great yeah. Chevrolet products yeah. and that, that elevate you above the rest uh-huh. of the world. Uh-huh. So uh, I, as I drove past the Subaru in my elevated state, uh-huh. um, I looked down, down into the, the cockpit. Yeah. And what did I find? I found uh, there was probably a 23 or 24 year old. Um, the best way I could describe her would be a Homerite. Oh, homeroid. Uh, or maybe no, ho- well, a homeroid. A homeroid. Ho- homeroid. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I have some friends in Homer that might not like that, but but uh, they'll know what we mean. <laughs> but, but that's that's what I mean. They yeah. don't have to accept it. I mean, they just know that who we're talking about. Yeah. Not it was them. So so you know, she had a, a, a knitted ball cap, oh, you know, yeah, crocheted yeah. Okay, or something, yeah, yeah. and um uh and probably extra tough. So that's you know the the yeah. uniform, no right? No dreadlocks. Um, you know, her hair was cropped short. Oh, okay, um, okay, one or the other. But she had both hands on her phone. Oh. And was steering with, with her, her knees. knees. Oh, I like and that. And was intently staring at her phone, which mm-hmm. I take great umbrage at because yeah. I was sitting in a stoplight about eight years ago and a similarly aged lady hit me while yep. she was texting and caused me some serious injury. Yeah, I was hit by a young guy that was texting. Yeah, so... Ran red light. So this is uh, texting etiquette. Oh, I like that. Board of Rules 11-12, for those of you who are rapidly uh, leafing through your own book of rules, uh, <laughs> looking for the reference. Texting shall be considered informal communication. Mm-hmm. Messages may contain sentence fragments, symbols, and abbreviations. Texting is only authorized after verbal communication has been established. For example, texting a coworker whom an individual has never called is not authorized. 
There are no preset limits assigned to text messages, yet consideration shall be given to others when multiple texts are transmitted. Subsection A. Texting is authorized only for individuals separated by a distance of 200 feet or more. <laughs> no, that, that, that is gone by the wayside. 200 you know, feet or no, more. No, no. I'm sure your kids text each other. But these are the rules. In the same room. The, these, you know, well, people violate them every day. I, I, they but must. Now, now that they're written down, yeah. you, know, okay. you have no excuse. No. Uh, subsection B. Regardless of federal and state law, texting <laughs> while driving is forbidden. Mm-hmm. This practice is extremely dangerous and an unglamorous method of suicide. Yeah, that's true. Subsection C, forwarding unsolicited cell phone text messages is forbidden unless the forwarded message specifically pertains to the recipient. Mm. (laughs) And subsection D, when an individual feels harassed by another due to an inordinate number of text messages received, the quote-unquote Texting termination abbreviation may be transmitted to the sender. Uh, what's that? The texting termination abbreviation uh-huh, is? consists of the first letter of each word of the texting termination phrase. The texting <laughs> termination phrase abbreviation is, is the, um, okay, T-H-E-O-T-I-A-H-A-L-A-S-Y-P-P-U- T P A C M I Y W T C F T Y V M. Oh, thank you very much. I got that one. So okay, you're what, gonna have to read that. And it, yeah, come so on. what it is is I've had enough of this. Oh, okay. I have a life, <laughs> and you should too. Please pick up the phone and call me if you wish to communicate further. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That, 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 Abbreviated, of course. Yeah. So I, I like when that. when you see that abbreviation, yeah. which I'm. Wow, that almost looks like the longest word in the English yeah, language. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, as Joshua, Mr. Belter has done, he's given us a, a great, you know, graphic <laughs> of what you should not do when you're behind the wheel. Yep. Um, and you experienced that the other day. Yeah. 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 So uh, if you're driving a Subaru or a Chevy or a Ford or even bicycle riding, please keep your texting to the coffee shop and not the roads. Yep. That's your public safety uh, uh, promotional message of the day. Oh, and watch out for watch out for porcupines. Porcupines are crossing roads now. You know, there's a porcupine over by Cook Inlet Academy that's sitting there, been sitting there for I don't know, a good three weeks now. Dead. It's almost perfect for harvest. <laughs> <laughs> almost. That's creepy. <laughs> just, you know, nobody's taken up the opportunity. Yeah, but porcupines are moving around now. So just, just if you're going to, you know, not text and drive, don't hit porcupines and drive. Or if you hit the porcupine, <laughs> make sure you hit it hard enough to knock it all the way off the road. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or just move it. Yeah. Yeah, but how? <laughs> all right. So, Loretta, you, you had some... Go ahead, Siglinda. Okay. If I hit a porcupine, how do I move it off the road safely? Vice grips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just grab a pair of vice grips and, you know, snap it onto the tail or yeah. whatever whatever solid piece of meat is left. You mean you don't have like uh roadkill harvesting stuff in your car? You're not an Alaskan. Everybody <laughs> has roadkill harvesting stuff in their car. <laughs> well, I've only been in Alaska for 2 years, so uh 
That's all right. You're you're forgiven. You can you okay. can make sure that that in your kit, yeah, you have some duct tape, yeah. and a blue tarp, yeah, blue tarp. Uh, definitely blue tarp Penny and. Gloves. Yeah, and, and some vice grips. Okay. Fire, fire starter. Fire starter, uh, yeah. A, a folding saw, uh, yeah, a just good, in case, good, and a good knife. A good road flare is a good fire yeah, starter. fire starter. And it's multi-purpose, uh, so you can yeah. you can mark when you, you know, maybe maybe uh, you, you know, find one of your neighbors in the but, ditch. But a knife to cut up if you accidentally hit, like, something bigger, but... That you could take home and put in the freezer. That you could take home, you know, you want to cut the legs off. <laughs> For those <laughs> friends of ours <laughs> in in uh, fishing game, uh, just sing a, a melody in your mind uh, right now. And, you yeah. know, I only have a, da, a, a master. You know, I don't think I have all that much room for all that equipment. You have a Mazda. Okay. A little bag. You know, maybe you could have sort of like the condensed fanny pack version. Okay, I got a fanny pack. Yeah. Because I used one while I was working at your parents' farm. Oh, yeah. So so that's how Siglinda and I met, is my parents own a peony farm. And she wanted an adventure, mm-hmm. so she went and worked with a bunch of teenagers all summer. <laughs> and she's laughing. So um, we're going to switch gears here real quick. Uh, I know that, that Loretta has prepared um, some uh, funding eight, update for us so by the numbers uh looking at some some relevant numbers for our local covid response can you give us an update loretta what you found yeah and this is just this is just one document and i don't uh, i don't have the you know what uh, the bandwidth emotionally psychologically mentally or even physically uh computer wise to follow down all these things so i just get basic documents you get the thirty thousand foot level yeah okay (laughs) so i found a document this is cdc uh, data cdc.gov administrative hhs provider relief fund so it should be trusted it's trusted as an authoritative source yeah and for um, everything i don't know the the dates on it um i didn't want to bother with that but to this point the kenai peninsula hospital itself received 16 million 16 14 14.049 million pesos pesos and the south pesos. peninsula hospital well, there are lots of pesos coming across the border yeah. right now so yes the south peninsula hospital received 7.4 million and they're on the other side of the border right yeah they're on the other side of the border okay. and then that's not you know and then it goes through and so what was that number again 14 14, 14, 14 plus 7 14 for the seven. Central Peninsula here in Soldatna, and the hospital in Homer received 7.4 so million. So $21.4 million has come into the community to our local hospitals. And then what's interesting, and I didn't want to be bothered if somebody wants, I'll send them the information, they spend their time looking it up, but this does not count the individual doctors that might be affiliated with the hospital too there was individuals on this list that did receive money for you mean ex- they get a cut too um yeah you can you can apply i mean uh, aa pain clinic in anchorage alaska got 70 million 70 70,000. 70,000. 70,000. Chump change. Chump change. There's dentist offices in Anchorage got 13,000. Um, Adkins Chiropractic in Anchorage got 90,000. Um, so 
I don't know enough about the doctors that are affiliated with the hospital that do their practices totally out of that what they could have received. Now, you were talking about Kenai Spine had received some. and Kenai Spine had received some, and the Kenites he tried received a million. Kenai Sports and Family. Just a million? Yeah. Okay, so, okay. You know, and there were some of them that didn't receive that, not much. Kenai Sports and Family Chiropractic received 170, 171. So obviously it was a program they could apply to. And I have to admit, uh, almost eight to ten months ago, there was a list put out of the program that you applied for, Jason, the loan program. The EIDL. Yeah, and yeah. There's, there's, that's another whole separate thing, mind you. That's a loan that needs to be paid back. This is grants. Free money. Free money. You know, and in case we, we think that um, this free money is being used nicely, I have an article here out of Washington State Department of Commerce. They've, uh, um, oh, their State Department of Commerce awarded $39 million to build 370 shelter housing units for the homeless. So you put that in your brain, you divide three, 39 million divided by 307. That is a nice house. That's a nice house. That's a nice house. And these house. are not houses. These are not, these are apartment uh, facilities. And but when I- How many beds? Uh, it's a supportive, three, housing units. Housing units, okay. So, so we don't, it's we obviously don't, individuals. Oh, individual. Because so it's not the way congregate they, housing. No, I don't think so. It says uh, it's broken it down. King County's getting some sixty sixty two shelter units, eighty four shelter units, okay. two hundred sixty nine permanent supportive, fifty eight thirty four. So it doesn't sound like to me these are four bedroom apartments. It sounds like these are very close to single or double. Okay. units and the funding on this some of it this some of this funding comes out of the covid the cares money you know i just heard the city of kenai is using cares act money to replace the roof on the rec center yeah well, on, on the city property that just is this is just such an abuse you know such an abuse i also heard that there was only one person that bid on the job yeah well because nobody wants government money no, right no. I, I have a sneaky suspicion that maybe it wasn't maybe advertised so well. No, probably not. I know a lot of companies that would love a chance at a Davis-Bacon job. Yeah. Which yeah. which I was told was just over $700,000, $750,000 or something mm. to replace the roof. Yeah, but that's, that's peanuts. Roof. That's peanuts, and that's the way they look at it because there's been $5 trillion in assistance during the pandemic. $5 trillion. And... We are an enumerate society. I do get that. I do understand that. Enumerate means you don't understand numbers. But you've got to understand that trillion is bigger than millions, and it's even bigger than billions. And when you get into five trillion, that's a tr that that is a, that's an incon. People have no concept of that's how big that number is. That's a lot of potatoes. That's a lot of potatoes. And this is not counting the $3.5 that, that Biden wants to spend. And in this article from the Wall Street Journal, it said the bailout came despite this bailout money, the $5 trillion, was dispersed, given, despite a mere 0.2% drop in state revenue. And again, for enumerate people, 0.2% is less than one. It's actually less than half of a one. It's actually more like a quarter of an apple. You know, if you take an apple divided into four pieces, it's like one piece of that apple, 0.2%. That's what that is. When you consider this 
an immense number that you can't even imagine for a 0.2% drop in revenues that they had. And then it also goes on in the article to say that they have not spent it. Yeah, like like 8% has yeah. been spent. Yeah, yeah. 8%. So they printed all this money. Yeah. They threw it all out there and said, this is to save the poor people from yeah. all the negative impacts of the pandemic. And, um, and look, look, government did what it usually does. Yeah. It insulated itself. Mm-hmm. It found some pet projects. Yep. It found some crony friends. Yep. That uh, I think that's redundant, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, some folks yep. to pay off and to thank for their generous contributions to culture and society. You know, how, how many teachers were laid off? How many, you know, borough uh, workers were I, laid off? I don't think How anywhere. many city, city workers were laid off? Right. And I'm not saying, I mean, those are our friends and family, but we've got to understand when we've had businesses that closed down, and we've got so many businesses right on the edge. Acceptable losses. Oh, so we're going to just keep all the government employees that produce nothing. Right, right. But, you know, uh, we we can appreciate all those entrepreneurs and small business people that work the 100-hour weeks and put all the money they earn back into their businesses and and, and thank them for their contribution to keeping the rest of us safe. The rest of the government employees safe and their pension plans haven't changed. You're sounding very jaded this morning. I'm just tired. I'm I'm looking at too much data that tells me we're run by a bunch of stupid people. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm sorry. I know you don't like the word. I, I'm not going to couch Which it one, anymore. Which one, stupid or sorry? Both of them. <laughs> hey, well, we could just call them sorry, stupid people. Yeah, well, they are sorry, stupid people, because that's the only conclusion I can come up with. You know, uh, it would be nice. I, I know that you always side with stupid, <laughs> uh, but um, my my um, I, I have a much more sinister uh, outlook on, or outlook on the sinister nature, rather, of of uh, people and that yes while there are stupid people i think they are lower level functionaries that are serving far more intelligent masters mm-hmm. and part of the reason i say that is uh, i'm going to transition here to our next little segment and this is on sort of some some national news around discoveries in covid and the vaccine and cdc policy you'll recall um a while back a couple episodes ago I uh, rec- uh, I encouraged everybody to go to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club website, which is just ammocancoffee.ninja. So put your www.ammocancoffee.ninja in, and that'll take you to our homepage. And at the top, you'll see a tab that says Membership. And if you hover over that or you click on it, it'll take you to a page where you will find conservative links. Now, you can't see the links unless you uh, sign in as a member. You can do that with your Facebook account or whatever. Uh, You can set it up with an email. But once you've done that, then you can see all the links. And on the read link, because you'll see read, watch, listen, and discuss, under the read link, in the third column, it says current affairs and news, there is a link to a website called Deconstructing a Paradigm. And we talked about this where this gentleman had collected a whole bunch of documents that were not only predictive of the pandemic, but seemed to be plans for the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one of those documents I want to call attention to is a document. It's actually a link to a page on the CDC website. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the CDC wants us to believe everything they say, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, 
Would you agree, Siglinda? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the CDC wants us to believe what they say. So isn't it curious that they have a whole write-up called Interim Operational Considerations for Implementing the Shielding Approach to Prevent COVID-19 Infections in Humanitarian Settings? Doesn't that sound very altruistically pleasant? They they care about us. They want to they, shield they us. They really shield care. Us. Well, you know, if you actually read what they're <laughs> proposing. They never thought we would read it. Yeah. This is the thing. If you actually read what yeah. they're proposing, they're actually proposing more or less concentration camps. Yep. And um, just before the show, I actually came across this link that was sent to me through one of our Telegram uh, groups. And it's uh, from a website called Before It's News. And I believe Mark um, Mathney is a publisher of, of the site, or actually a major contributor. And he's got a segment in there called Sick Semper Tyrannis. Mm-hmm. Those are the famous words that were uttered by the, the, um, the assassin of Abraham Lincoln mm. when he jumped out of the balcony and, you know, he shot Lincoln, jumped mm-hmm. out of the balcony onto the stage and shouted those words. I think he broke his leg when mm. he did it but uh it means thus to all tyrants mm-hmm. so mr mathney actually exposes uh this new idea new in quotes that uh the cdc is considering where they're talking about uh red and green zone detainment camps and if you don't think it can happen mm-hmm. You only have to look at the internment of the Japanese, mm-hmm. the Italians, and the Germans in the United States during World War One, or two rather, and and even to uh, the inhumanitarian, the, the inhumane treatment of the natives that were removed from the Pribilof Islands here in mm-hmm. Alaska and mm-hmm. put down into these sheltering camps for their own protection, mm-hmm. which were basically mothballed canneries and you know government buildings that were poorly insulated if insulated at all into the winter far from population and medical care where many of them died because the government cared for them mm-hmm. oh governments really care they care a lot to you know, enough the, to write it down you know the thing that that um that's interesting about the privilege story is that when they when they took the the native men out of the privilege and put them in the camps for their own protection the folks that removed them actually stole a bunch of their stuff and burned their (laughs) houses down Mm. because they didn't want to leave any infrastructure for the impending Japanese invasion. Mm. That was their reasoning. Mm -hmm. So long after, you know, hostilities had ceased and those people were actually able to be repatriated to their homes, Mm -hmm. there were no homes to be repatriated to and their belongings Mm -hmm. were gone. And um, with the Japanese, they were forced to honor their businesses and off their land. Many of them were farmers. And uh, sometimes with very little notice, they were only able to carry a suitcase at most. Mm -hmm. And they were put into similarly harsh conditions in confinement. And they died there. Yeah. We did this Mm -hmm. as a nation. We did it once before 
we can do it again. And that's within relatively recent history. That's within a hundred years. That's recent that's history. That's 1940s. You know, and and so you know, yeah. Siglinda is is here to talk a little bit about uh, where she comes from. And we've talked about Germany in the past, and uh, we've talked about the war and and the rise of uh, fascism and and the Nazi party and um, and and Hitler and you know how quickly it happened. And Siglinda has some some familial connection to that period of time and that place. And so, Siglinda, I'd just like to open up the floor to you to just, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about the the story you shared with me about where you were raised and how you came to be in the United States. Well, you know, I was born 1944, one year before the, before the end of the Second World War. Uh, my father was in... Uh, present in Siberia and did not return until I was two years old. And, um, and, and who ran the prison in Siberia? It was an American prison camp because the Russians and the Americans were allies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are going, oh no, and I say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, they had prison camps probably all, all over you know, not just in Siberia. But before that, my mother was pregnant with me and she was living in Frankfurt and when the Americans bombed the train station in Frankfurt, she was probably living about a block or so away from the train station. And needless to say, they had all gone to the bomb bomb shelters. They were not in in the apartment, but when she came back, there was no apartment building. There was nothing. So she was fortunate because she grew up about a hundred miles from there on a farming community. And so she went home and her brother took her in and that's where I was born and that's where I was uh, there for two years. When my father came back. So I remember quite a bit after, you know, the... And how did your dad get back? That was an interesting part of oh. the story when you were talking that I was, okay. I was kind well, of shocked by. They, they woke up one morning and the gates were open, all the trucks were gone, and all the guards were gone. And they had no supplies, they had no extra clothing. Uh, he said the Russian folks that lived within this help them get out through, you know, Siberia. And Siberia is not, you can't see Siberia from uh, Germany. No. Unlike Alaska, where you can see, you know, Siberia from Alaska. So I, I imagine, I imagine they, they found a, a train that they could have, you know, put them on or whatever. I don't think they totally walked out. Well, I find that, you know, really interesting after what we've just experienced in Afghanistan, seeing how our military went in, built all this infrastructure, promised the local people a whole bunch of things. And, you know, there's something inherent about taking prisoners, yeah. right? If you're, if you're not just going to outright execute people and you're going to put them in prison, then, you know, international law says that we should be treating those folks humanely. And it doesn't sound like waking up one morning to find that the people who have been tasked with providing for all of your care and protection, because you are being protected in yeah. the prison as mm-hmm. well, 
as a prisoner of war to have just upped and vanished overnight and then left you deep, deep, deep inside of what was previously enemy territory with a hostile group yeah. of folks who really don't care for you because right. you probably, you know, your, your, your nation killed their grandmother or something. Well, you know, I imagine that the, the Russian folks were, were glad that the Americans were there because an alternative would have been Hitler. And so, mm-hmm. um, well, I'm 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 more speaking to to the German POWs, yeah, yeah. you know, well, yeah. And uh, from what I've read in history, not all not all POWs or not all uh, German soldiers actually volunteered; they were pressed into service. And so, so, so let's flat fast forward a little bit. Okay. Your, your your dad basically walked out of out of Siberia, got out of however he could, made his way home. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you get to meet him? I I imagine I was like two years old or so. Okay, so I, it was pretty pretty I, soon after you were born. Yeah, you know, and uh, but I remember having to go. You know, they they moved uh, back to uh, the Frankfurt area where my dad was from, where there was more jobs. But I remember going out into the fields after the farmers uh, uh, to pick up the rest of the potatoes that were left behind, and. Uh, Picking dandelions because you can cook the greens and. So you were you were subsisting off gleaning from what was left over. Basically, yes, because things were, you know, the wages were not very high, and uh, so we we you know scratched together what what was there. Now we've talked uh, quite extensively in the past about you know the Nuremberg Code and kind of the post-war response to um, the the criminal things that happened in war and how how the conquering allies had treated folks, um, you know, and, and many of them you know many of them had had done some pretty heinous things. As as a soldier coming back from the Eastern Front into post-war Germany. Did did your dad or, or your family have any kind of, uh, uh, have to go through any negative kind of um, inspection or, or difficult time with the Allies? Were they, uh, you know, were they coming around and saying, hey, you're going to go and sit in court or you're going to, you know, you have to justify where you were on these dates or any of that kind of stuff? No, there wasn't any, um, any restrictions on anything. Uh, you know, they were free to come and go as they please. And, uh, you know, after the war, the, uh, the government installed the, um, the health program because most people didn't have insurance. Mm-hmm. So, and so, so Germany had a, had a nationalized health system? Right. Okay. So um, now I know that that you've spoken favorably in the past about some of the some of the benefits of that, especially Gosh. in a in a destroyed country My- that doesn't have anything left. Um, and one of the things we've been focusing on in this show is this rapid, uh, you know, seems like progression from from uh, private health care to right. a rapidly nationalizing system. Right. Um, in in the healthcare system in Germany. Um, what were the drawbacks to nationalized health care? Uh, drawback is uh, taxes were pretty high to, to be able to afford this um, 
When you say high, what, how would you quantify I that? I would say their taxes were probably anywhere between 45 to 50%. Okay, so for those of you working, you know, to make ends meet so, right now, if you're making minimum wage or just yep. over, let's just say you're making a good solid $15 an hour because that's what the Democrats right. keep telling everybody, we need to go to mandatory $15 an hour. The taxes on that would have real give you a, a realized income of only about seven dollars and fifty cents yeah okay um national health care in germany was set up so uh my dad was the only one working and i had uh two brothers and my mother and father you know so we were five people we were all covered under my dad's um pay but when, let's say, he got sick and he couldn't work, the insurance paid him 90% of his wages while he was ill. If he had to go to the hospital for a certain amount of time, they would pay, still pay him 75% of the wages. There was no time limit. It was up to the doctor to decide when... You know, he should be going back to work. Medicine was free. Everything else was, it didn't cost anything. As as far as quality of care went um, and access to care, what kind of, what kind of wait lists or, or what could you expect if, if you had a a chronic need or, you know? Um, You know, I remember uh, our home health care, you know, the, the doctor that was uh, our, and readily available if there was even a little minor thing. I never had, I broken a leg and I was taken into the hospital. I didn't ha- not, did not have to sit and wait forever to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, in the long run, it worked for the people because... <clears throat> Otherwise, they would have been without any any kind of medical help. And why would they have been without any medical help? Because they probably wouldn't have been able to afford to pay the doctor. So when did you leave Germany? Um, I left Germany in 1963. I was a little bit over 18 years old. And uh, I brought a daughter with me. Okay. I had a, um, she was nine months old when I came. My husband was already in, on Fort Lewis. He had to go back before I was able to get all my paperwork done. So you married a, a USGI? I married a USGI. He, he was... We married after my daughter was already six months old, mm-hmm. and um, he 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 took responsibility for this unborn child that we did not have to go through adoption. You know, so when when I married the father, her name was automatically changed to his last name, mm-hmm. and she became an American citizen instead of a German citizen. Did she have uh, dual citizenship, or was she... She had dual citizenship. Mm -hmm. I have 
three daughters actually they were born in Germany they all three had dual citizenship until they were 18 years old mm-hmm. it is very important for the for the boys to declare their citizenship because since Germany still has draft and they draft by birth certificates so if the boys don't make up their mind if they're going to be an American German government may draft them and they have to go mm-hmm. <laughs> now now you're 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 a naturalized citizen of the United States yes, I am. you talked a little bit about that and and uh, tell us a little bit about that process because we hear we hear so much about the southern border and we hear about you know illegal immigration and we see people walking across the border and they tell us these vast numbers and I, and I know I know from talking to people like you and Loretta and others that it wasn't quite as simple as that no you know I I had to go um, like I said my husband left uh, we were married like two weeks when he went back to the States so I had to go through all the process by myself I had to go to Frankfurt and go to the American consulate get an application fill it out all my paperwork had to be done in triplicates uh, German uh, things had to be translated, and they all had to be notarized. Uh, I had to prove that none of my uh, none of my people were involved with the SS, mm-hmm. because if one of them would have been, I would have been denied entry to the United States. So if any any family member had been yep. a member of the SS, you would have been denied that right. that entry. Okay. You know, and it took three months to go for them to go through the paperwork, and um, you know, uh, I had to have a doctor examine me. Very intense. You know, it wasn't just hey, do you look good, yeah. but you know, so. If there would have been any disease that was I was carrying, I would have been denied. Mm-hmm. So we're hearing right now that the that the that the folks coming across the border are not being vetted as far as even their COVID uh, status, mm-hmm. and um, yep. so it seems like there's a double standard. Absolutely, very much a double standard. When you consider, I've been th- fingerprinted three times three times and I'm not done anything wrong that's part of the naturalization process you too Mm -hmm. and a lot of those people coming across the border so my fingerprints are in some database those people coming across the border they're probably not having that done the biometrics taken you know and actually the last time I had it done mine are in an electronic database because I was the last time I renewed my green card it was all done you stick your hand on the thing and they so it's even in a bigger database now so you think about that and and people's that's why we're some of us are angry even people that look like me because it took me a year and a lawyer and many thousands of dollars to get to get became a become a citizen you should have just walked through the Rio Grande Valley I should have if I would have known yeah. <laughs> well, you know, at that time I was living in El Paso. Um, I could have done that, but it wasn't that wasn't my no. choice. 
You chose to follow the rules. My choice was, you know, I I wanted to be here. I paid my dues. I did my waiting. And uh, I had to denounce my citizenship. I will bear arms against my enemies. That would have been, will be my German heritage. So you'd have to, you'd have to bear bear arms against yeah. Germany if mm-hmm. Germany were to mm-hmm. go back to war with us. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's pretty that's pretty significant mm-hmm. commitment to becoming a, a U.S. citizen. You know, and that is not the easy thing to do. Right. Because you 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 are, one day you are a German citizen, and the next second. You are kind of sh- legally stripped of that. Uh-huh. You know, it, it doesn't change who I am. So, so let's talk a little bit about your your um, your nationalism. Now that you're a U.S. citizen and you've been stripped of <laughs> of that allegiance to Germany, yep. uh, and that's not. I mean, we're talking about this happened a long time ago. Yep. You've been a U.S. citizen for uh, many, many years. Uh, probably. 30 years 30 years and um so looking back now what what can you say about the united states that just maybe maybe uh fills you with pride or or gives you gives you happy warm feelings well you know i i never want to be any place else anymore why is that because i I can, I can, this is a vast country, I have the option of, um, you know, the southern, the northern, the eastern, the western, and I can pick and choose where I want to live, and Germany is awfully small, mm-hmm. yeah, I could move around in Germany wherever I want to go, do whatever I, you know, but the opportunities are just so much uh, greater. Right. You know, and I have children that are American citizens. So my, I am rooted in. <laughs> so is there is there anything that concerns you today? Looking back on your American experience and looking forward, are there, is there anything that raises red flags or alarm bells for you or concerns you? The main thing that is this, this vast, pushing people from other countries into here that we have no idea who they are, what they are, what they're bringing with them, and what what is their purpose for being here. Mm-hmm. Well, many would argue that they're coming here for the same reasons that you did and Loretta mm-hmm. did as the vast opportunities. Yeah. But as we know, you know, being a citizen has some cost to it. You've already paid yeah. dearly to go through the process to mm-hmm. naturalization. You did it the legal way. Right. Um, so that's some cost. But uh, I assume you pay your taxes? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and and I'll compliment you on your English. I mean, you've had a long time to practice it, <laughs> but, uh, but you speak the language very well. Yeah. And, you know, um, one of the things that I don't see coming coming uh about with all of the migration that's happening is any kind of enculturation attempts by the government 
to to help these new people who they're allowing to come in to become enculturated to our culture and to adapt uh, adopt our values and our beliefs and um, those those foundational elements of what it means to be an American. They're not being helped to be part of this country. They are. Uh, they, for instance, you know, my my children went to a school in El Paso, Texas, and they integrated a bilingual education. And in the beginning, I I. I assumed that they were teaching the non-speaking English children English, but it turned out to be they're teaching my children to learn their language. To learn Spanish. Spanish. And I'm going, wait a minute. You know, and and I, I... When I go to a store or whatever, you know, the older people, well, not even older middle age or whatever, they have to have their children go with them to translate for them. They're not making any effort yeah. to, to fit into. Yeah. So when you came to the United States initially at 18, mm-hmm. how was your command of the English language at that time? <laughs> it was zero. Zero. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. So being in that position when you first came, not knowing the English language, not being able to communicate in that what what did that do for you for access to services to to um, education to um, employment you know all, all of these things that we have to do in our daily lives what talk a little bit about that that process well you know I did not have that opportunity because my husband he spoke German not very well but he did and he uh, was uh, sent TDY for 90 days after I was there. That means temporary duty yonder. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was left with uh, my daughter, and I did not know how to drive. So he taught me how to drive in those 20 days mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> kind of showed me around, you know, um, Fort Lewis area. I had he showed me where the hospital was, but uh, if I anything else I was not able to do, and I insisted that he buy me a television so I could um, watch people what they're doing, mm-hmm. how they're reacting. Yeah. You, you did a lot of facial watching, yeah. body image, uh, yeah. Yeah. and you you kind I kind of put little words together and sometimes it didn't make any sense because I was thinking in in German and having to translate it into English words and uh, that's not a good practice. (laughs) 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 They tell me once you learn a language you should be thinking in that language. Right. And uh, you know driver's license I was not able to. How, to How long did it take you to have your first dream in English? If you had to guess. It went back to when I went to school. My first year in school, we had the American military bring us lunch and feed us. And they did that for five years. And I thought, that's pretty neat. Maybe I want to go there. 
then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learned how to eat oranges and bananas, and uh, we had baba gum. And <laughs> you know, how can you not like? As far as um, when you started dreaming, though, like when when you'd go to sleep in your dreams, do you remember when that transition happened? When How long did it take you to assimilate enough of the English language that when you were sleeping, your dreams started to be in English? Um, it probably took me about a year and a half before I was comfortable. That's amazing. So... One of one of the things I used to do is I used to uh, run a international exchange program, and that was one of the things that we we talk about yeah. with kids who would stay. And their purpose was to learn English yeah. and the culture, you know. Um, and uh, and we would encourage them, you know, that they needed to. And it wasn't because we wanted them to forsake their mother um, tongue, uh-uh. but we encouraged them not to speak their their uh, language as much as possible and speak our language as much as possible because until uh you dream in english right the your acceleration in learning a language is far less right effective Mm -hmm. once you start dreaming in that language the 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 curve for learning the language it becomes a lot easier to to traverse and so um I wanted to ask you during that time, you know, so you're talking about this year and a half to two year yeah. period where you're really struggling with the language. At any point, did you feel like you were taken advantage of because of because of your lack of, of a command? I mean, you were on base. No, I was not. We were living off. Oh, you were off base. On okay. economy. And uh, there were a few people, you know, things that happened while I was struggling you know, like go to the store and they refused to sell me something and I and I kind of took that personal. I mean, you know, I'm German. I like my beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was not 21. Oh. <laughs> so, so, and I, I, I couldn't, couldn't comprehend. Uh, not having access to beer. Why <laughs> aren't they selling me the six-pack of beer? <laughs> right. You know, so you storm out of the, yeah. you, you know, you're just, and, and the people behind there, they're going, well. It's the law, lady. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the reason I was asking is, you know, um, a lot of, I know there are a lot of groups that are working with migrants or um, refugees or, you know, folks coming from other places around the world and not knowing the language. And especially not coming into the country in a legal way, not having the proper documentation mm-hmm. and things, you know, that actually sets people up mm-hmm. to be victimized. Yep. And, you know, we hear about uh, human trafficking. We hear about the drug, uh, the drug trade, yep. smuggling operations, you know, um, human mules, all these sorts of things. And it's always kind of blown my mind that the U.S. government, at least during my lifetime, has not has not worked harder to help immigrants and people assimilate into the common culture and you know i really i i heard somebody say once upon a time that uh you know the the democrats um used to own plantations back in antebellum (laughs) and when they when 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 the south lost the war the civil war 
that uh, the Democrats moved into the cities and they created new plantations called projects. Yeah. And that, uh, that folks in the projects, regardless of ethnicity or race, became the new slave class. Yeah. And they were provided with government subsidy and funding just enough to get by, but not enough to get ahead. And that um, if you kept trickling out these breadcrumbs of benefits and things, but never really enough to Mm -hmm. catapult you up to the next level, that you would remain a dependent class uh, that would vote. And rather than making money off cotton, they started making money off us. Uh, and, and, And really... You know, that's what they were doing in Antebellum, uh, you know, the, the South, is they were making money off of people's lives. Yeah, and they're, they're doing it again, and there's a subset of, of our government, some of the bureaucrats that have put in policies. My daughter worked in a facility in Greeley, Colorado. There were 17 languages spoken, and every document had the capability to be uh, translated into the 17 languages. And they have to have on-site... A per- someone that spoke that language or have them readily accessible in case one of these people that was supposedly supposed to be legal, so they should know enough to say good morning, hello, I need to use the bathroom, but in case they needed to ask that, you had to have the ability to deal with that person. Well, it just seems like, you know? it just seems like, you know, it's doublespeak that, that the left will say, you know, we need to reform immigration, we mm-hmm. need to bring all these people yeah. in, we need to provide amnesty for those who broke the law coming in. But then on the flip side, they're not empowering people mm-hmm. to have full access to the benefits of, of the United States. And if you don't speak the dominant language, then... All of those missed opportunities, all of that information that you're not going to pick up that's in a conversation, you know, I'm constantly learning new things because I listen to people. I listen to what's going on around me, and I benefit from that. And if I, if I didn't speak the language, you know, if it wasn't my first, you know, language mm-hmm. or I was not well enculturated, I, there's no way I'd be sitting here today behind this microphone. Right. Okay, you know, let me let me say something about double standard from for from a INS. When I went to Denver, I drove eight hours to go to Denver because, um, and uh, the day we were, I was doing my my initial examination of my knowledge of um, government and language, and because they say you have to. You know, be familiar with the, some of the government, you know, laws and all that. But you have, should be able to understand, read, and write English. Good, you know, that's fine. But before the test started, I said, okay, all Spanish people peer over this way. And I'm going, that's odd. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I went that way. And you went with the Spanish? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, you know. And uh, You could have self-identified as a Spaniard. Right. You know, I got brown hair, brown eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the accent might have, could have yeah. you know. But, you know, so I was nosy enough to find out. I asked my person that gave me the test. I said, oh, excuse me, uh, why were we... S-? And he said, well... The INS has special arrangements with the Mexican government, and they don't have to speak English or read and write English. Really? 
And and what year was this, if you had to guess? <sighs> Probably. 94, 95, somewhere around there. Okay. So it's only gotten worse since then. <laughs> you know, and when I went, when my husband and I went for my interview, because we were married, and then I went for a final interview for my green card. This was in South Louisiana, New Orleans. The interviewee, the guy that interviewed us, was an African-American from Louisiana. We walked in. He looked at us. He looked at the paper. He looked at us. He looked at the paper, and he started laughing. And we went, is there a problem? And he said, this is going to be so easy. And we never actually talked about anything other than gumbo and how to boil a crawfish. <laughs> because he implied now, that... Now, did you know that was going to be on the test? No, and it wasn't. But he implied <laughs> that it, we were so unusual. We were a, a Caucasian married couple okay. that came in. That, were, that, that he didn't even have to ask any of the questions. Seriously, and this, you know, he was an African-American. It's not like this was this, you know, southern white guy making a judgment. Mm-hmm. It was an, a black, you know, New Orleans guy making a judgment. Yeah. We were so unusual. And that's what's so sad about the immigration system. And that was in 91, that, that it is so corrupt and it's so filled with people that want to come here for the wrong reasons that immigration people even know it. Right. Well, you know, um, we are just at the hour mark right now, and so this is the hour of power, so we're not going to go much longer, but um, I wanted to thank you, Siglinda, for coming in and giving us a little snapshot. There, there was a really interesting piece we talked about when you were here, and that was, you know, I was a, I was a child at the time, but I remember seeing the the, the images on the television of when when the wall came down. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Now you were already fully an American mm-hmm. citizen by the time that happened, but tell us a little bit about sort of your impressions of that time. And Not actually. I was still, what that happened probably 86 and I was not a citizenship not yet. Okay. at the time, but, um, I had gone with my brother and my daughter we were on vacation, and we drove. The first time we drove through the eastern border, we were checked in. We were given so much time to make it from checkpoint to checkpoint. If you got there any faster, um, would have been against the law. I don't know what the consequences would have been. But the second time I went in 87, early 87, with my daughter, and... Uh, the border was wide open. The, the the guards were friendly. They were smiling. They were giving their uniforms away, and um, you know. And so we went to the Berlin Wall, and I mean, it was uh, part of it was um, just a shell, and um, and it was probably six seven feet wide. And it was hollow in the middle, and it had metal crossbars all over. So this this wall would not been um, been able to take out by vehicle or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Like I said, we were speaking English, my daughter and I, my, my brother, my sister-in-law, and my niece, they were up front. And, and a German gentleman, he had a table and, and so-called pieces of the wall approached. Um, he, I heard him talking behind me. He said, I'm going to go to those Americans. They buy anything to dumb Americans. Mm. And I'm going, okay, here's my chance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting, you know, just, I know he's coming. So he comes behind me, and he has this trouble, you know, trying to speak English. And I let him proceed, you know. And then I turned, looked at him, and I said, first of all, I'm not a dumb American in German. And he kind of goes, oh. <laughs> I said, you have the wrong idea about Americans. We're not dumb. We're not stupid. So, go away. So he went away. On our way back, he, he came to me again with the same pieces of wall, and he's very humble. Would you, would you, I'd like to give this to your nephew. And I said, you better ask his mother. So he went up to, to my niece, and, and she said, mm -mm. it's not deep wall. It's a piece of cement that you poured and you painted. <laughs> anything to make a buck. Yeah. Well, it, if we can say anything about the wall, before it came down, it was very effective at doing its job. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who didn't call, uh, grow up in the Cold War and uh, don't really know much about what we're speaking about, can you can you just, for our younger listeners, talk a little bit about the purpose of the wall? The purpose of the wall, since uh, the peace treaty was made, uh, you know, that Russia got so much land, and part of East Germany was part of that, because part of it was given to France and England, and, you know, but it was, it was designed to... to to help the people of Berlin, and um, but the Russians, needless to say, as a, we don't want anybody else coming in here. This is our territory, so we built a wall because too many people were leaving East Germany because um, opportunities were not. Uh, Wasn't fun living with yeah. the Russians. No. So, <laughs> so and so they, they they made sure that most of the people had to stay where they were. And they were very controlled, as I understand, you know, with, uh, okay, for instance, you know, they were paid by the government. They were not paid by the individual business owner. They were, everybody was paid by the government. Mm -hmm. And That's uh, not a good thing? I'm being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> You, you 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 knew that I was kind of going. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have seen the look I just got. <laughs> but you know, so when they when they went to work, and there wasn't a lot of pro, uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff coming into East Germany. You know, the Russians yeah. were not producing a lot, and it was uh, lower grade. And uh, so when let's say a gentleman went to work in the morning, he seen a line outside the store, he would stop. He wouldn't go to work. Mm. Because supply line was... Yes. You know, where he could buy something. But while he was gone off work, he was still being paid by the government. 
Wow, this this has a really strong correlation to what's been happening here in the United States. Universal basic income, anyone? Yeah. You know, this is what happens. People think that uh, people are honorable when you just pay them and they'll go to work. No, it doesn't sound like it. Unless there's something really good on Netflix that day. (laughs) You know, so... um, Which is ironic because it's always on Netflix every day. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I, I remember... When they, when they, in 86, when I was there, they were not allowed yet to move out of East Germany. They were still, you know, but the wall was open and they got permission to come over to the, to the western side through checkpoints. And anytime they came, they had limited time, how many times they could come during a week. And they were paid 100 marks every time they came across to help them because their money, Eastern money, wasn't any good in Western. Hmm. Their money had no value. No. You know, so they were given some uh, Western money. So they could come in and kind of get get the feeling. Why, Why didn't they just print more money? I have no idea. I mean, isn't isn't that the solution to everything? When when the economy is doing bad, just print more money. No, it's it's trillion dollar coins. Twi- trillion, trillion dollar. You, you haven't coins. heard that one yet. No, no somebody in the um, Janet Yellen's office said, "Well, we'll just print a platinum trillion dollar coin and put it in the you know treasury, and they've got an extra trillion dollars." <laughs> That's that's the way it's done. You just pretend, pretend money. I'm very serious. Yeah. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, you, you know, it wouldn't have helped, you know, if the money was printed in in East Germany because it wasn't nobody it, wanted it. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> nobody wanted it. I mean, you know. Sadly, you know, we're we're talking about the potential of the dollar being yeah. the same thing. Nobody wants it. You know, you know we're 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 looking at. Uh, quantitative easing four i think is what they're going to be calling it next and uh it's interesting uh i've been talking with a real estate agent we were looking at real estate prices and uh there was a uh a woman that we were I'm, i'm actually studying for my real estate license right now and so i was shadowing this realtor and and this woman was selling her house and she was like, wow, I got full price offer on my house. And the housing market up here is just stupid. There, there's so many COVID refugees coming up here that it's just driving the market like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gal bought her house three years ago, and she doubled her money in three years. Yeah. And very excited about that. And as we were looking at the history of the place, you know, back in 2000, the same house sold for $100,000. Mm-hmm. And this week, it sold for almost half a million dollars. So you might say, wow, you know, look at the, look at the massive amount of profit that was, was realized off of that. But really, the, the converse is true. You have to look and say, wow, look at how devalued the dollar has yeah. become since 2000. Mm-hmm. You know, what would have bought you, what $100,000 would have bought you in 2000, yeah. now yeah. half a million dollars has to buy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just 20 years later. Yeah. It's, it's insanity. Yeah. And 
You know, uh, we are living in a time where our country is being fleeced from every angle and our government's not being honest with us. And um, I had a couple of other things I just wanted to talk about that if you if you were a big uh, COVID vax supporter, I would caution you and tell you, you really need to start looking at every possible source you can and start using an inquiring critical mind to look at these things. I know of a specific case where an individual in Alaska had a contact that resulted in little metal shards the size of hairs coming out of her skin. And I thought that it was, you know, I kind of was like, okay, whatever. You know, that just sounds like more strange, you know, (laughs) UFO stuff and conspiracy (laughs) theory stuff. But, um, and then I ran across a report of a U.S. soldier whose wife was blowing the whistle. He had received the mandatory vaccine Mm -hmm. and immediately starting having discomfort. Then he took the, the, the second dose and started complaining, saying that uh, it felt like he was being, that there were needles being shoved out of his body from the inside out. So they went to a doctor who shined a ultraviolet or a black light on him, and they found all these ultraviolet patches all over his body. And they took a closer look at what these patches were, and they actually found they were tiny micron size uh, shards of a metallic substance coming out of his body. And they actually were able, they were large enough that they were able to grab one of these with tweezers and look at it and videotape it. And when they held the metal shard close to his body, it appeared to be self-aware. It started moving like it wanted back in. So, I mean, this is like freaky X-Files kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That you'd think, well... But when I ran across that story, it made me take a second look at this other story I had had heard about an individual here in Alaska. And so I started doing some research, and I came across two articles uh, in the Harvard Gazette. And one of those articles talked about this breakthrough in gene science where they were able to find that there is a specific chromosome in, in the genetic you know, helix that um, fluoresces. It has a fluorescing uh, aspect to it. And they were really excited because they learned that this particular chromosome, they could, they could program it to produce proteins in a hyperdrive. Just endless, endless proteins. And we all hear about the spike protein and, you know, how this vaccine is supposed to impact the spike, pro- uh, create the, the RHA, RH, I always get it wrong, the R, RNA. The mRNA. The mRNA process, you know, creating the spike protein that, that then attacks the virus in one specific way. Well, there was another article. So that was interesting, this fluorescing thing, yeah. right? Because this gentleman had this thing, this stuff coming out from inside of him, you know, and and you've probably all seen it on online where 
people are like, yeah, I just got the shot and I put a magnet on my shoulder and now it's sticking. Well, I've also heard that people are having that in their bellies as well, that they're able to stick a magnet to them. And then this gentleman's having these metallic shards come out of his body that seem to be self-aware. And um, so then I, I see this other Harvard Gazette um, article about this huge breakthrough where they are now able to take the um, take DNA and construct it. They can program it to build 3D structures in the body that measure the micron size. And that it was, it was under a nanotech article about creating nanotechnology, things that, um, structures that will respond to electric stimulus in the body. And then they showed some of their early work showing how they were able to program these structures and how they, how they rapidly reproduce, almost like cancer, mm. right? And, and how they can create these machines basically biological machines inside the body now of course they're all talking about harnessing this for good you know that we're going to use this to to do diagnoses of of um different types of ailments that are cure cancer cure cancer cure cancer cancer, you know diagnose you know things that are hard Mm -hmm. to detect because Mm -hmm. now we have this friendly mechanism inside the body that will will be able to get readings from and um but the structures that they were building looked very similar to the structures that were coming out of this gentleman's mm. body. Hmm. And um, just some really bizarre stuff. Then, then I read an article, actually watched a video from a woman who has a, owns an independent medical laboratory. And she was given the Pfizer. Uh, there was a, a Pfizer vaccine dose uh, where they had ended the day and given all the shots they could out of that. And at the end of the day, they just throw away what's left because you can't reuse it Mm -hmm. once it's been heated up and so she got a cop she got she got this Mm -hmm. this vial and they put it on a slide with no medium Mm -hmm. no no sort of anything for it to grow or Mm -hmm. do you know it's not like a petri dish but then they looked at it and under the slide they were able to see these metallic structures Mm -hmm and shards and things in in the in the serum itself and then they were also uh, as it warmed up to room temperature they watched it do all these fantastical things with mm. fluorescing colors mm. like a kaleidoscope of color and then in the midst of it they saw this creature mm. that uh, a small um, protozoa that looked like kind of like a squid mm. And it was moving. As it warmed up, it moved and it came to life. Mm. And it lifted itself up off the slide. Mm. This was in the Pfizer vaccine. Mm. So they got another dose Mm. and looked at it. And again, they found the same structures. They found the same response. And they found another one of these Mm. protozoa that was in the center of the slide. The other one had been near an edge. Mm Mm-hmm. But this one was in the center of the slide, and so it couldn't move. Mm-hmm. And they were able to look at it closer. And so they were like, this is really freaky. The woman said she cried when she saw mm. it. 
And um, the person interviewing her, um, actually, I'll give you the reference point to that. If you go once again into the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club webpage and go under membership and then go into the resources, you can actually go uh, to watch. And under the watch tab, uh, there is under the third column, it says conservative vlog, so video log and syndicated content and uh the third item is the Stu peters show mm. and Stu peters interviews a bunch of pe- people mm-hmm. and you'll, you'll actually find the the mm-hmm. video about the soldier with the metallic shards mm-hmm. and stuff from his show as well but go and take a look at that mm-hmm. because it's it's quite startling and then um just today i heard about hydra vulgaris uh, okay <laughs> so when this woman saw saw this this uh protozoa mm-hmm. they didn't know what it was they mm-hmm. didn't know how to classify it they didn't but they've done some research and they've now identified it as this protozoa called hydra vulgaris mm-hmm. hydra vulgaris gives off a venom like um much like uh, snake venom mm-hmm. poison and the closest analogy, I guess, that they, they when they described it, that I'm not a scientist, so, you know, um, they, they said, you know, like other protozoa, which they said, you know, some of the largest ones are the jellyfish, mm-hmm. they have toxins mm-hmm. and as a defense mechanism. And that this particular toxin can cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm. Hmm. And that when you take these protozoa and you blend them up, that into their into parts and pieces like imagine taking a a a jellyfish and throwing Mm -hmm. it in your blender and blending it and then throwing it back in the water all the parts and pieces of hydra vulgaris yeah regrow new protozoas yeah yeah so kind of like when you pull the tail of a lizard off Mm -hmm. you know you go to catch a lizard and grab its tail and all you're Mm -hmm. left with is the tail they'll just grow another one Mm -hmm. or like when a crab loses its it's uh it's pincher or leg it'll it'll just grow it back Mm -hmm. right so hydra vulgaris when you smash it and mash it and blend it up it will actually create many 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 more of these Mm -hmm. things and that results in a toxic effect Mm -hmm. on the body including a toxic effect effect on the brain as it crosses the blood brain barrier Mm -hmm. the government is giving away lottery tickets <laughs> to get people to, to take taking, this shot. Yeah. The yeah. government is doing everything full court press. And I want to bring this back around to follow the money. Mm-hmm. We started out this mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. with Loretta talking about the money. And we we're just talking about a small microcosm of the money oh, yeah. just on the peninsula. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what did these local institutions promise in return for all this money? to do i would challenge you to listen to the radio and listen to who the loudest voices are for Mm -hmm. vaccination Mm -hmm. they have sold us down the river for a bag of silver coins very expensive bag of silver coins they're not our friends the fact that they will completely disavow any knowledge of any other alternative prevention Mm -hmm. Or treatment options 
and pound away on this you must be vaccinated drum and say that it's so important that they're going to fire their nursing staff at the height of a pandemic, mm -hmm. right? I mean, just use mm -hmm. basic logic. At the height of a pandemic, you don't fire your nursing staff. Mm -mm. But so anyway, um, takeaways from this, this uh, session, walls are effective. Berliners will tell you that. <laughs> um, so finish the wall on the southern border. Yeah. Right? Yeah, finish the wall. They're effective. Mm -hmm. And um, for, for a full generation of people, they couldn't cross that wall. Mm -hmm. And those few who did were lucky that they did so. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we want true security on our southern border, we need to finish the wall. We also need to chase down this money and find out who got it, why they got it, what they promised to give away. And we also need to question everything that our government tells us we should do without questioning. Mm -hmm. Because right now, the CDC has the roadmap for creating concentration camps right on their website. And they are exploring that idea. So you have been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. Thank you very much, Siglinda, for coming in and speaking with us about uh, coming to America and your immigration experience. Well, I'm I'm glad to be here. Proud yeah. to be here. And uh, you know, we're talking to more and more folks who have immigrated, and um, and it's interesting that pretty much all the stories are almost identical. And actually, we tend to be more patriotic than the average American. Uh, when I became a citizen, I actually had two very, very good friends, no longer. When I told them that... They're no longer your friends? They're no longer my friends because uh. they said to me, Oh, I'm so sorry that you're going to become American. I am so sorry. Don't you have any other option? Were and they went, Americans? They were American, they born, were Americans. bred here. Yeah. Um, one of them was an Alaskan, lifetime Alaskan. The other one was a little older than me, and she'd lived in Alaska for years and years and years. But they, they said that, and I, I thought, well, that's just, like, really nasty. That right. is just, like, why would you think that about yourself? A lack of perspective. Yes, it's a lack of perspective. And one of the last things I did with my, uh, my adult children before mm -hmm. they were out of my control. Yeah. I don't think they ever were fully in my control, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before, uh, so, you know, a lot of parents will like to do something special for a graduating year for seniors. So my two oldest are twins, mm -hmm. and I thought a little dose of perspective mm -hmm. would be good. And so we booked a senior trip for them mm -hmm. for 10 days <laughs> to Haiti. <laughs> and we spent 10 days doing work service yeah. in a school. Yeah. in a church in Haiti yeah. um, and seeing how the locals live and seeing what they have to deal with. And that was before all the current crisis yeah. and turmoil. And it was bad then. Yeah. It was really bad then. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like now. And we, we pray for our Haitian friends. Yeah. And, you know, when we see the Haitians come across the border and the government kicks them out, but then they take in all of the Latin American folks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you want to see true racism. Yeah. That's the epitome of racism yeah. Yeah. because they know that the Haitians hate the left. Yeah. The left raped their country. Mm -hmm. The Clintons, you know, came in and, and they reinstalled Jean-Baptiste Aristide, <laughs> who was a dictator. Um, they got all kinds of concessions for doing so. Um, their friends, their crony friends in Ireland got the, the singular 
um, concession for wireless and telecommunications in the country. It, it just, just uh, you know, so, so if people say that the immigration thing is not about politics, you couldn't be more wrong if you tried. Mm. So that's... You know, Bob Bird, Bob Bird calls his last comments bird droppings. I don't mm-hmm. have any bird droppings, but I do have uh, rules from the Book of Rules. Uh-oh. But I, we won't <laughs> read anymore today. <laughs> Thank you, folks, for uh, tolerating another episode. If you would like to come and contribute, uh, please reach out to us at Ammo Can Coffee Social Club. Also, if you click on this, uh, this, this uh, episode, it should take you to our Podbean platform. If you enjoy the content, please consider sponsoring the show. Uh, you can do so using Patreon, and uh, there is a, a, um, a button that says Reward. If you click that, then it'll ask you for some banking information, and uh, that'll help us cover our costs and upgrade our equipment and bring more and more interesting folks into this video. Have a great day, everybody.